break out between siblings with differing tastes, if the siblings were raging maniacs. There was a great deal of noise all the time. The place smelled of disinfectant and perspiration. It was a familiar odor. He had been here before. He could do the time, even with the stink and the bad, cheap food, and the uniforms and rules that were almost as bad as at St. Joseph-by-the-Sea, the parochial high school that tried unsuccessfully to mold his character. He could withstand prison if he didn't have to think. When his incarceration began two weeks earlier, he was able to keep his mind on safe ground, friends, and family. That didn't work. He soon learned that there were no safe-thinking subjects in prison. Friends? Shit friends who didn't care if he lived or died? Family? Why wasn't anyone taking his calls anymore? What about Stephanie and Anthony, their two-year-old? or his mother and father and his dozens of other so-called relatives. Stephanie took his call once. She was okay. The baby was okay. But she was struggling. Nobody was sending her money. One of his so-called friends, Armando, had promised to give her money. She waited, with the baby, at a shopping mall on Staten Island. He stood her up, and she waited for an hour like a teenager on a first date at some cineplex. Now Stephanie wasn't taking his calls anymore. Oh, and Charlie was pissed. Lewis's guy, Charlie. His protector and his curse. He was really pissed. The FBI had knocked on Lewis's door just before dawn on October 20th, 1999. Lewis and Stephanie were asleep in their two-bedroom apartment. They lived in a townhouse in a former rural community called Eltingville, in the southern tier of the New York City borough of Staten Island. Unlike the older, more crowded neighborhoods to the north, crime was low on the south shore of Staten Island. Women could walk the street at night without being bothered. People knew each other. Strangers, be they burglars or FBI men, were conspicuous. Stephanie was the first to wake from the FBI knocks. She sat up and cursed. More strangers at the door. Over the past few months, there had been other pre-dawn knocks. There were a lot of visits by people who didn't like Lewis or wanted something from him. Once, when she wasn't there, the visitors had come by car and tried to smash it through the front door of the garage. She had gotten used to that kind of thing, but not used to it so much that she was willing to continue living with Lewis. They were on again, off again, on the rocks. The FBI men politely removed Lewis's computer and gave him time to dress in a sweatshirt and jeans. Then he was escorted in a van directly to the FBI field office at 26 Federal Plaza in Lower Manhattan. At that point, Lewis had to pick between two distasteful alternatives. He chose swiftly. Having made that choice, the only reasonable choice under the circumstances, Lewis called Charlie. Charlie expected his call. Charlie was always available on the phone. That was why Lewis paid Charlie. Charlie was a problem solver. Of course, the main reason he paid Charlie was that Charlie was a problem creator as well. Lewis grinned as the FBI tape recorder began humming and Charlie began screaming. Taping Charlie as he screamed was a labor of love. Charlie loved to scream. When Lewis was arrested, the idea of not hearing Charlie scream, of being in a position to not see Charlie's phone number and his pager, gave him a feeling of serenity. His hate of Charlie was combined with another emotion, fear. After a few days, fear overcame hate, and he stopped cooperating. So his bond was revoked and he was transported to the Hudson County Correctional Center, where federal inmates awaiting trial were housed when the Metropolitan Correctional Center was filled up.
or at least that was the explanation. Lewis thought maybe he was sent to Hudson because the federal government, for a growing list of reasons, did not like him. The feds kept him in Hudson, he theorized, because Lewis knew about the guys. He knew they were on Wall Street. He knew their names. He knew the scams that had fed them. So there he was, three weeks after his arrest, two weeks after he was sent to Hudson, lying on his bunk and listening to the snores and thinking about the guys. The guys could get him out of there. Charlie was his guy, but there were plenty of others who had a claim on his services over the years. Ralph, Phil, Frank, John, John, two Johns, the Turk and the Irishman, Elmo. There were so many guys, and they were so different in age, appearance, and ostensible socioeconomic strata. Carmine was a fruit man. Phil was educated, and Frank wore a mink jacket. Ralph was from Pennsylvania. Whoever they were, it was always first names and nicknames. Cigar, dogs, fat man, as if they were school kids. And they traveled in gangs, like school kids and prisoners. Gangs of fat, stupid, violent, middle-aged men. Not good fellas. Not the godfather. At times they seemed to Lewis as a kind of weird amalgam. The Sunshine Boys meets the Warriors. To the guys, Lewis was a piggy bank they would crack open, literally, if need be, when necessary to get money. Lewis would fill his piggy bank with other people's money. When he had the money, it always seemed to go somewhere and quickly. Most of it went to his debts, because Lewis gambled, and was the most inept gambler since Staten Island was settled in 1670-something. A lot of it went to Charlie, but never enough. All Lewis 